Russia is not as good as we thought they were. We've seen failures in everything from their generalship to the lack of an NCO corps and to the performance of their soldiers. And of course, that extends into their, their equipment, uh, their shortages when it comes to supplies, so forth and so on. The second thing we learned is that the Ukrainians have a much better military than we expected. And I think a lot of that is due to the, the arms and training that we provided them over the last few years. But of course, you can't discount the most important thing in a conflict, and that is the will of the people. I'm Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. Really excited to have former Defense Secretary Mark Esper with us today. Thanks, Joe. Great to be with you. And so you were the Defense Secretary for 2019-2020. Before that, you were Secretary of the Army. You're currently uh, the Distinguished Chair of Modern War Institute mm -hmm. at West Point. And, you know, I'd love to, I'd be remiss not to start with, I think, the big thing going on in the defense world today, which is what's going on in Ukraine with right. Russia. I mean, you obviously have unique insights into Russia's military. I think a lot of us didn't really even learn what happened until it hit the ground. It seems like there's a lot more that might be broken there than we realized. Like, what are your thoughts? What have you learned? Well, first and foremost, it's a tragedy, right, that uh, Russia would invade Ukraine under false pretenses. And at this point, the indiscriminate bombing they've done of so many Ukrainian cities and the killing of innocent Ukrainians is just horrible. Um, but that said, to your question, we learned a couple things, I think, militarily from the conflict. One is uh, Russia is not as good as we thought they were. We've seen failures in everything from their generalship to the lack of an NCO corps and to the performance of their soldiers. And of course, that extends into their, their equipment, uh, their shortages when it comes to supplies, so forth and so on. The second thing we learned is that the Ukrainians have a much better military than we expected. And I think a lot of that is due to the, the arms and training that we provided them over the last few years. But of course, you can't discount the most important thing in a conflict, and that is the will of the people and the will of a people operating under great leadership, which I think President Zelensky has shown us. So I think those are two notable things coming out of this. I said before the uh, invasion actually began that tr uh, Putin had already lost. He lost because he had done three things uh, before invading that he shouldn't have wanted to do in the first place. That is, number one, unify NATO. Number two, have more NATO troops move toward his border. And then number three, push the Ukrainians uh, more into the arms of the West. So uh, at this point, it's clear that he's uh, failed, at least in his major strategic objectives. Uh, the question will be, is where does this go? One of the theories I saw was that the, the oligarchy around him, at least on the defense side, is really corrupt. So you had someone in there who was apparently quite good and pushing vendors hard and trying to do the right thing. And he pissed too many people off. So like a king's court, he got taken out. And so the guy running it now was the guy who made everyone happy. But therefore, he got really cheap Chinese parts and took extra money and did, didn't do a good job. Is, is it possible some of that's going on? I think that is a prevailing theory that despite whatever uh, Putin was doing when, when it comes to modernizing his forces, there was a lot of corruption going on. A lot of people were telling him what he wanted to hear. And at the end of the day, you can see the performance on the battlefield. It just was not what many of us expected. And is this, is this what was happening in the Soviet Union as well? Were there times when their armed forces were a lot stronger relative to the time? And so, so it was surprising this is happening now? Like, like how is this culture compared to what they were before? Well, I did think we thought we would see a difference, but it appears to be not unlike what we saw during Soviet times. So the heavy use of massed forces, a reliance on artillery, uh, if you will, barrage uh, tactics to, to, to take down cities. Uh, but we thought that they would, and, and the use of conscript soldiers, we thought yeah. they'd move beyond that, that they'd professionalize their military, that they'd become more adept, more agile. That does not appear to be the case. Do you think, do you think Putin might have thought they'd move beyond that too? And I he think might so. be surprised? I, I, I think he would be surprised. And I think we'll have to see what happens in the long run, whether he, you know, fires some of his top cabinet members. Why are they attacking civilians? It seems like there's just a no win for anyone. It makes Ukraine want to fight harder. It makes the whole world want to condemn them more. What, what are they doing? 
Well, again, I think what we thought, what he thought, presumed, was that they would quickly take the country. They'd see, seize Kiev in a matter of days. They'd replace the government. They'd e- either kick uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky, out of the country or capture him. They'd install their own puppet government. Uh, clearly, clearly, they weren't able to do that. The Ukrainians stopped them. And, uh, and so now what they've done is settled into their traditional siege tactics, which we saw them do in Aleppo, Syria. We saw that, them do that in Chechnya before that. And here we are once again. Uh, they're using artillery, rockets, cruise missiles, aircraft to bomb, um, to, to bomb Ukrainian cities and people. And before I move on to the broader context, I'm also curious. There's a lot more use of drones in this war. It seems really fascinating. These guys have these hidden small drones and they fly them up and they hit tanks at night. And stuff is, it, is this this a new relatively new thing in warfare? What are, what are we seeing with that? It is it is a new thing in warfare, and actually the Russians showed this to us in 2014 when they first invaded Ukraine in the Donbass region. And I thought we would see more of it by the Russians uh, this time around. We haven't. We've actually seen the Ukrainians more use more of the drones, uh, primarily Turkish bought purchased drones. So again, they're using it to great effect. Uh, that combined with the use of uh, anti-armor weapons, the javelins and the N-laws, anti-aircraft weapons like the Stingers, uh, the Ukrainians are making exceptional use of small unit tactics against a much larger, more conventional force. I was with uh, the Israel defense minister last week when I was traveling in the region. Mm-hmm. He was telling me their new tanks could take out like a few of these missiles at once. It's anti-tank stuff. How, it, why doesn't Russia have any of that? You, you would have thought they'd be more advanced because like, they have all these good engineers. Well, they do. That Russia does have very capable engineers and, and technicians. But again, we just don't see that they've advanced the technology or expanded enough through production to really fill the force of that uh, level of modernization. And so, sitting back to this conflict as a whole, how does this end? And what, what, what else could we be doing without risking escalation with Moscow? How should we be thinking about this? Well, that is the question. I think, number one, we don't want to risk an escalation between the United States or NATO and Russia. I think that could lead us to bad places that we don't want to get into. We want to narrow the conflict, not expand it. Uh, but where we end up is is the question. Uh, can Putin walk away with a loss? I don't think so. He's going to have to find a face-saving way out. I think folks are going to try and help him do that. Um, at this point, I think his tactics will continue to be the indiscriminate shelling of Ukrainian cities, trying to break their will. Uh, my sense is, though, that Ukrainians are tough people and they're not going to yield. But you do see, you, know, you pick up through the media, that both sides are putting things on the table that maybe they could live with a um, w- with a uh, Ukraine that isn't pursuing NATO membership, for example, and maybe yeah. some type of different arrangement when it comes to the Donbass region. We'll see. Uh, you know, people have asked me my thoughts, what should it be? Uh, my view is we need to follow the lead of President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people and see what, what they want and what they're willing to live with. Oh, it makes sense. So, so when you were when you were defense secretary, you guys were pushing hard for NATO and our allies to to raise their defense spending. I think two percent was the target that right. we kind of had for them, and they all sort of in theory they'd agreed to that. None of them ever did that. And I guess you know it, it, with this invasion, are some of them going to hit those targets now? Are they going to get closer to them? What's what's happening now with that? Well, yeah, you're right on the first point. Now, you know, first and foremost, I still think NATO is the greatest military alliance in history. I served in NATO when I was stationed in Italy in the 1990s and uh, trained with our NATO allies all the time. But you're right. By the time uh, I had assumed office in 2017 as Secretary of the Army, you'd see that maybe a half a dozen out of the 29 at that time, uh, NATO allies were meeting their 2% goal. And it was a goal set under the Obama administration, which I thought was a, a worthy threshold. It's always fun being, a, you have to be a little bit of a politician. <laughs> it's like, yeah. these guys are great and it's important, but they're screwing it up and they're not meeting their goal. Why, well, why, why, why not? And I would sell, tell them uh, publicly and privately, you're not meeting your goal. You should meet your thresholds. That should be a floor. Frankly, I thought we should they should have gone above 
that. Yeah. And the, the, the part of the part of the matter was they were going to rely on the United States to bear the burden. And, you know, the poster child for this was the Germans. Um, they were at 1.3 something percent defense spending. What I'd find when I would go talk to other NATO allies, they'd say, you know, why are you pressing us? Uh, you should you should talk to the Germans. They got a bigger economy than we do. So I think at this point, all credit to the Germans, they've reversed their policy of engagement with Russia. They've now committed to spend, I think, $100 billion over the next year or 18 months. And they've promised to quickly go above the 2% threshold. I think that's a very positive change. I hope they will sustain it. And I hope it will lead to all 30 countries now meeting that 2% threshold. Just, just curious when you're in that situation, what's the right way to pressure them to meet their goals and not make us have to do it all ourselves? It seems really unfair. Well, I think what you got to do is point out the fact that they made a public commitment. In this case, it was in Wells uh, in 2014 and hold them to that comment and put pressure on them politically and otherwise. And uh, so it's just a matter of honor. There's nothing else you could do. You just got to say, guys, you're being there. There's not much you can do in, until you start affecting your own interests. Right. You, you don't want to withdraw from Europe because yeah. then you actually make uh, the, the alliance and, and the countries in the alliance more vulnerable. So the important thing was to always reassure our allies and continue to deter Moscow. And I think we've done that effectively. What I was trying to do as Secretary of Defense was actually push more forces east up to, toward the Russian border in the frontline states, as we call them. That makes sense. And in this whole thing, China is obviously watching really closely. Right. We spend most of our time talking about China when we talk about defense. And this, this is kind of an you know, unexpected development for a lot of us. Like, is this going to change their calculations on Taiwan? What, is, what, is, what are they thinking? Uh, I think so. And I hope so. And I'll, I'll say a few things. Uh, you're right. China is watching. Taiwan is watching. Uh, Asia is watching. So a few things have come out of this. And I, I said this at the time. Uh, China, I believe, is watching to see how the United States and our NATO slash EU partners would react. Would we unify? Would we come together? Would we be willing to pay tough economic sanctions on Russia? Because, look, if we won't push it, put tough sanctions on Russia, which is, has one-tenth the size of the economy of China, then yeah. we won't do it to Beijing. So I was glad to see the allies come together, number one. Number two, I was really pleased to see uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, and other Indo-Pacific partners uh, come on board early and criticize and condemn the Russian inv- invasion. Well, Japan and Russia don't have a very friendly history for a long period. Of they time. don't, but it's you know it's too easy for uh, often for countries that sit halfway around the globe to kind of stay out of it and 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 stay you know complacent. So that was good. The third thing, though, and I said this again publicly. It was important to see the Taiwan for the Taiwanese to see what an inspired, well-led defense, a territorial defense of their country can do, yeah. in this case, Ukraine, because that will be very important if China wants to invade Taiwan. Yeah, that, that really is a central question is, is if people fight back or not. Right. Right. And, you know, what I guess the other thing we talk about in the defense world, which is still kind of in the background um, unfortunately, there was an attack in Israel by ISIS a, f- a few days ago, a small one. But what about the persistent threat of terrorism? And actually, I have a question along these lines. You know, in Iraq, Camp Buka became an incubator for ISIS after we, you know, we kept, captured so many terrible terrorists, got them all there, we left, and then they released them all, right? And it, and it feels like we might have done this again in Afghanistan. I, I have a lot of friends who were involved in, in capturing a lot of the bad guys in the region, and I think a lot of them were put in, in this prison and in, in background, and, and then we left, and everything fell, and, it, and I understand a lot of them were just allowed to come reemerging, which seems like absolutely ridiculous to me. And so is, is, I mean, are we going to face more terrorist threats, and how should we be thinking of that? I think the short answer is yes. I, I think we face them from a couple of different sources. One, of course, is the are, are the terrorists who are sponsored and the proxy groups sponsored by Iran, and we could talk about that separately. Yep. But then there's the others, right? The the Al Qaeda's, the ISIS, uh, those that we're concerned about. Uh, you know, that's why I was opposed to a complete withdrawal of our forces from Afghanistan up until the, until um, the Taliban met their end of the political agreement. And if they weren't, then we should have stayed and maintained a presence and supported the Afghan army. So at this point in time, we have to worry about that. I know Central Command. 
The commander there, Frank McKenzie, has spoken about this. Others have. And it's just going to be an enduring threat we're going to have to deal with. And it, by the way, it's no longer just in the Mideast. It's in Asia. It's in Africa, of course, and how, elsewhere. How should we be thinking about this? Just from a common sense perspective, we spend... And I know from Palantir work from a while ago, we spent a lot of money and resources with really bright people tracking down the bad guys. And in many cases, instead of eliminating them, you, you capture them and put them in prison. And then they very often seem to be let go to attack us again, whether it's from this <laughs> Campuca or Bagram or Guantanamo, and they're back out and they're, and they're doing things against us. It's, it seems silly to let the bad guys go. Go like do something we have to do with international pressure. Like why? Why does it keep happening? Well, you know, we do use a lot of lethal force. At least the United States does against the bad guys. And uh, you know, during my tenure, we took out, you know, several. Uh, most notably, uh, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi. Uh, we mm-hmm. we took him out in, in Syria. In other cases where we capture prisoners and we hold them, we try and press other countries like our European partners to take them back and hold them in more secure facilities. And there's often a reluctance to do so. What, what, why is that? Why? I, I, I think they don't uh, want the hot potato of having that threat in their country. Maybe they're not sure that their legal system will, will, will uh, find them guilty and hold them. Got there it. are a number of reasons. Got it. I mean, if, if I was running like a, a serious military and there are these bad guys, like, I'd much rather like, a thousand of them died if they were bad guys than just got released to attack us again. But sure. like, we, at least we have legal concerns as well, obviously. Uh, I we mean, can't it's, we, you know, the United States military always follows the, land of, uh, the laws of land warfare and things like that. And, you know, we have our own rules. So we try and do our best to go after the, you know, the terrorist leaders and, and take them out. And I think we've, we've done that fairly well over the years. So speaking of bad guys, let's talk about Iranian leaders. I, I said Iran itself is not bad guys. I love the culture there. Obviously, mm-hmm. Persians are awesome. We have a lot of friends we work with here who are from there. But it seems like Iran's like just is the bad influence in the Middle East right now. And, and I actually really see a lot of promise now Israel and UAE and Saudi and others are kind of actually working together with the Abraham Accords, I think in part thanks to this. So it's maybe some good things have come of it. But, but what are we going to do with Iran and what's going on with this, with this deal that's well, being made? You know, it is a great culture and great people, the, the Persian culture and Iranian people. But they are led by this, you know, religious extremists who have been in power now since 1979 and obviously – the United States and, and Iran have not had relations since then. It's been a history of conflict, unfortunately so. And what I used to always say is, look, we just want you to behave like a normal country and, and not sponsor terrorist groups uh, from Africa all the way across through the Middle East and and engage with your neighbors in a positive way. But we have to continue to deal with that. So I think that is, is the biggest challenge we face now in the Middle East. And it has had, interestingly, a unifying effect between the uh, Gulf Arab states and Israel. And I think it was also advanced by the Abraham Accords uh, that was signed at the end of the Trump administration. So all those things are positives on one hand, but clearly Iran is going to be the challenge for the coming years in that region. And I mean, what's going on? It seems like we're going to make an, like, I didn't, I didn't personally agree with the Obama deal, but I think it was like on a spectrum of possibilities. It was one extreme. And it feels like this new deal now is even beyond the extreme of what anyone would rationally agree to. It feels like they're just saying they have to do a deal. So they're going to give them everything. And it's very frustrating. Is that, I'm curious what your view is. Well, about. the original Obama deal w- was not a good deal. It yeah. wasn't long enough. It didn't have enough accountability. We gave away too much up front, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I thought it made sense to withdraw from it, but uh, and, and I thought the maximum pressure campaign also made sense, but we couldn't get the other allies on board or many in our own country. So that that kind of hobbled uh, the last administration. Uh, we got to wait and see what the Biden team comes up with. And I'm afraid what you're saying is correct, that they didn't they didn't lengthen and strengthen it as they promised to be. And it'll be uh, it'll be a worse deal. I think my personal view is in these cases, these types of deals, given the significance of it, it should be taken to the Senate for consideration. Uh, I know it's not a treaty, but it can be treated as such by us and see where the Senate stands on it. 
And and I mean, there's rumors they're going to take the Revolutionary Guard off the terrorist list when they're still committing attacks all the time. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Is this something that would even be seen as like possible in the last Yeah, again, I, I think that's a mistake as well. I would not take them off because uh, they are sponsoring terrorism throughout the region. What is the theory when the when these people in the current Biden administration are so eager to have this deal, even if they're given all these things? Is there is there some rationale to that? They seem to have such a different model of the world than, than the last administration. Well, I, I, look, I think both Republicans and Democrats agree on one thing, that we sh- Iran should not be allowed to acquire a nuclear weapon. It would yeah. be a game changer in the region. It would be a, a, a terrible advancement for our allies. So they're willing to give everything to stop if they think they're stopping that. So we just have different approaches on how to do that. I'd be mm-hmm. fine with a deal if it was a strong deal that was a Accountable, that was long yep. and enduring, et cetera, et cetera. But we we got to be able to get our allies on board first and come up with that type of deal, and then really you know compel the Iranians to to come to the table I mean, and be serious negotiators. I mean, it feels like you know obviously we convinced Ukraine to give up their nuclear weapons, which maybe wasn't ultimately good for them, although it's not clear they controlled them. I guess originally we convinced Libya to give up their nuclear weapons, and then we went in and took them out. Um, if I was running Iran as a rational person, I might not. I might want nuclear weapons because it seems like if you don't if you don't have them, you're going to get attacked. What's the dynamic there? Yeah, if, I mean, that know. is a lesson that uh, folks have taken away from this, folks being the likes of North Korea, Kim Jong-un and, yeah. and and his predecessors. And that is you do have leverage if you have nuclear weapons. So you it, it's hard to make that case. And you have to apply various means of pressure, economic, diplomatic and otherwise to, to get them to cr- recross that threshold. I mean, if Iran's going to have weapons, Saudi probably is going to need to have their weapon. You deal with the proliferation problem. There have been talks by folks in Asia, for example, should Japan or Korea either get their own or host their own host uh, nuclear weapons. It, so, se- it seems better than us having to, to fire back, you know, if, if well, we don't want happens. anybody firing. I, again, we don't I want think, firing <laughs> at all. But it, but it seems like that you need more deterrence. That's not just us. Right. Right. I think the simple thing is just behave like a normal country. <laughs> you know, the Iran's and North Korea's, et cetera. But and the problem all, is there's a few of them that are not. They're run by autocrats or theocracies or authoritarian states. And and that's, that's a problem. Look, we now see China expanding and improving its nuclear arsenal. That's another concern of ours that we didn't have for the last 30 years. Let's talk about procurement. So America spends uh, huge amounts of money on defense. I think it's like probably number two now to, to our to our pilot programs, but it's, it's the thing we spend the most money on. And there's a lot of stuff that it seems, from my perspective, is, is actually more like a um, cronyism or jobs program or cultures that are afraid of, of new innovation. You're, you're on the board of a company I helped found mm-hmm. called Epirus, uh, which is one of the world's most powerful direct energy systems. We had Bomar, the CTO, on, on the show earlier. And, you know, there's, it's revolution technology, and, but there isn't really a lot of frameworks to support revolution technologies in the DOD. It takes a long time. Like someone like me and my friends could start them because we can just give them a ton of capital to get to the point where eventually they break in. But it seems like it's really hard for new technologies to break in. And almost everything just goes through the the old legacy companies. And what should we be doing to make sure the Pentagon's more open to new, better technologies? Boy, it's such a great question. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I I came to the job, both the Secretary of the Army and Secretary of Defense with a background from the defense industry from one of those prime Company, So I had a chance to see and understand the dynamics from those sides as well as from the congressional side. Look, the, the, the biggest problem is a risk-averse culture at DOD where you're, you're not penalized for, for taking a chance on a new technology where it's better off to be safe and to go the safer route. Of course, that's not the world that you work in or that I work in now where venture is willing to put big bets on, on technologies and win or lose uh, because the, the payoff is so big. Uh, that's what we need to get to. There have been attempts in the past. I, I think some of my predecessors 
introduced, uh, you know, the DIU, Defense Innovation Unit. Then we had the Rapid Capabilities Unit. Mm-hmm. I overhauled the Rapid Rapid Capabilities Task Force in the Army to do this. I stood up Army Futures Command here in Austin, Texas to get after that. My whole thing was most of the innovation, a good deal of the innovation is happening with these small entrepreneurs, innovators, folks you know well, Joe. And the key is how do we get them married up with the big institutional bureaucracy of DOD and then get DOD to spend some of that money and take uh, and make those big bets, right? And mm-hmm. first and foremost, I think it's more, far more about the culture than it is about the tools available to DOD. And that's a challenge. It's going to take leadership at the top, something I try to do um, to, to really get folks to make those bets and learn a different way of doing business. How, how, how can we bring more technologists into the bureaucracy? It seems like a lot of the bureaucracy is maybe not as fluent in modern technology culture. And uh, maybe it can't afford to hire the best technologists. Maybe they don't seem to be attracted to it. Are there attempts you've seen to do that? Or is that something that matters? You know, with the Army, we had uh, fellowship programs where we take uh, uh, Army majors mid-career who had technology backgrounds who were in acquisition. We we share them with industry, if you will. Uh, there are other programs like that to do that. But you still got to deal with that massive bureaucracy in the middle whose career are built on trying to advance programs and are comfortable with a slower pace and with the traditional providers and suppliers. Uh, one of the reasons why when we stood up Futures Command, we wanted to put it here in Austin, Texas, is we wanted to get it away from those traditional hubs. Uh, Just bring it to a new, a new bring culture. It, bring it to a new culture where That's that cool. innovation was living and thriving. What are some of the internal obstacles you face at the DOD from the bureaucracy? I'm curious. Are there things as a leader, let's say I want to go in and, and help run the DOD in 20 years or something and I get to do that. Like, Are there people inside who are like secretly like making your life harder or, or slowing things down? Well, look, they're all good people. I don't think anybody's trying to do it on purpose, but they've been conditioned over years to follow, for example, long checklists of things they must do. Uh, they like to build long lists of requirements that, t- that tell an innovator everything he or she must do to make it to, to, to make the technology the way it is. And I, I think that type of over-bureaucratization of the innovation it's really just, hurts. Yes, yeah, it's, 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 it's so top-down. It's, it's telling exactly what you need. Very top-down. It's very sequential in process. So one of the things we try to change with the Army Futures Command is put all the people in the room at the same time. So it was less like a relay race and more like a football huddle where you'd all get out and run the play. And it was just a number of techniques like that. But still, you got to fight the bureaucracy. You got to bring those young innovators and entrepreneurs in and engage them. I, I, know, I noticed with a recent like RFP from the Air Force for the EMP space, which is relevant to stuff that we're working on. They asked for a system that could do certain things, and, and we could actually do it much better, much cheaper. Right. But they dis- they specified how the system had to work, which is not how ours works. So even though it was clear, like if they're asking for a solution, ours was a better solution. Like they'd specified how it had to work. It feels like that comes from the 1960s. It feels like that's the old way of like specking everything out, which is well. You mentioned crazy. you mentioned Epirus a, a few yeah. moments ago, so I sit on that board. You co-founded it. Uh, one of the things we found is that last year. Uh, Epirus proved through its Leonidas system, it can knock down drones and drone swarms through high power microwave. And not, not long ago, if memory serves me right, uh, you know, a requirement came out from somebody within DOD and it said with, the, with a, a drone, counter drone technology, it had to be vacuum tube technology. Yeah. Well, look, that's well, <laughs> that's but, what we've been well, using the last fifty years, and that was written three or four years ago. And, and I and I, I didn't remember chatting with the chief of staff of the Air Force. He's like, "Well, even I don't have the ability to change that. Maybe next time I could change it, but this time it's already says that, so I can't fix it." I'm not sure about that. That's where leaders have to get involved. You think leaders could get involved and fix I, these? I things think so, broken. absolutely. And, and so there shouldn't be we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't tell them what type of technology. We should just say what's the outcome we want. We want the ability to shoot down 
certain types of drones, fixed wing, rotary wing at certain distances, and that's it. Whether it's vacuum tube or digital technology like the EPRA system uses, it shouldn't make a difference. A lot of these people who are senior in the bureaucracy end up going to work for the legacy defense companies. They move back and forth. That, that must influence some of this where they realize that if they're doing it a certain way that helps the legacy and protects the legacy ones, it's going to help their job. Do you, yeah, have, I, you think I, of some I, of I don't know. I, I hate to you know kind of apply those motives to, to folks. Maybe that's true in some cases. I just think they've been they've grown up in a culture that, again, is risk averse. They know that the the, the long established uh, prime companies can can prove can can deliver. It's just that they don't innovate as quickly. They may take them longer to deliver the technology, but at least they'll get it right at the end. Is the presumption? On another policy question. Uh, a lot of people tell me that the way it tends to work is you have a certain budget, and if you don't spend it, there's a sense that you're not going to get the same budget next year. That the planners are going to take some of the money away from you didn't need, didn't need, and therefore you're not going to need it next year either. So there seems like a lot of people feel like they have to spend money sometimes inefficiently. Is that something you saw? Well, you, you see that not just in acquisition, but in personnel and everything. I mean, there, yeah. there is this notion: if you don't spend your budget, then obviously you didn't need it all. So maybe we we could take it back. And that that becomes a negotiation not only within the service or DoD, but then ultimately with Capitol Hill that appropriates some money. So those are all considerations. But again, it gets back to what are the motivations and incentives. In, in the private industry, as you mm-hmm. know, you can line up incentives really closely with what you the outcome you're trying to achieve. Yeah. It's much, much harder in the bureaucracy. Because one of the ideas people have is that if they don't spend all their money, make it easier for them to spend some of it on a new, new innovation or something like that. Would that is, is, are there things like that that could be done on a policy level to, to help, or is, is that too difficult? Well, you, you know, one idea that I've put forward is to really give the Secretary of Defense, the service secretaries, a fund by which uh, they can uh, give contracts directly to young, again, innovators, entrepreneurs, I keep saying young, but innovators, up, entrepreneurs, up and coming companies, up and coming companies that's mm-hmm. right. At some certain amount, it can't be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. It needs to be in the millions, at least, because that's what you need to get going. And and also be willing, again, to have a 20, 30, 40% success rate. It's not going to be 100%. Yep. If it's 100%, then you're, taking, not, you're, you're, ma- taking risk. you're yeah. not making big bets. Yeah, you got to be taking risks. So talking about the policy successes from your tenure as Defense Secretary, I understand your top priority was implementing the National Defense right. Strategy. What were you able to accomplish, and, and how do you measure the success of that? Look, I think first and foremost, if the United States is going to beat China in the long run, and Russia, of course, in, in the closer term, uh, we have to have an integrated system of allies and partners. And I really spent a lot of time on the road meeting with our allies and partners, talking about readiness, how can we work better together, et cetera. Uh, beyond that, also focused, focused inside the building. You know, I did identify China as our pacing threat. We did a number of things to to reorient the system. We came up with new uh, a new warfighting concept, uh, new models of operational and tactical readiness. Uh, I focused on uh, writing a plan for a future Navy that could deal with China in the 21st century, and that would keep make sure that we are the the uh, primary uh, best naval force on the planet. So there are a number of things along those lines. And then also, I, I spent a lot of time uh, looking at our military families and our military spouses. I, that's the backbone of our military strength. Is a, is a, it's a family business, if you will. Mm-hmm. But taking care of those who serve Take, Taking those care of the families is critical. Very, very on, important. On the Navy side, it seems to me that like autonomous submarines and things like that that are kind of echoing the drones we're seeing it actually work like are going to be the by far the most cost efficient way of, of fighting and, and moving things around like and it seems like there's a bias to still build some pretty big ships that aren't that are pretty easy targets for our, for our adversaries how, how do you think about the trade-offs there and how we're doing this yeah you know i i think the navy's behind uh, the, we've been flying drones in the air now since the 90s uh we we, sh- we should be having surface drones subsurface drones now there's you know uh, some conflict within the navy about that some moving too fast too slow uh, people on Capitol Hill putting some obstacles in the way. I think we're behind. And I don't think we have the right 
force for the future. Uh, what I argued for, what I put forward was a 500 plus uh, fleet force with well over 100 optionally manned uh, systems. That's where we need to be. That's going to get us the the capacity to to control and, and monitor the seas, and then the capability as well to fight in the future. So if we were if we were going to let's say you were mapping it out and you're going to spend a few hundred billion dollars over the next ten years on like new things for the Navy, and you wanted to have some kind of contest with smart people to figure it out. Like if if I were holding that contest, you know, I'm biased, but I'd go to the very top elite schools and the top computer science, electrical engineering mm-hmm. graduates, like these guys who are just some of the brightest people. And right now, if you go to these top schools. I mapped this out for my firm, HVC. Basically, none of the top couple hundred people are looking for jobs in the Pentagon, which, which to me is very scary. First of all, like who is mapping these out? There must be some smart people. But if you're not getting the best and brightest technologists, are, are you probably missing some possibilities there in terms of how well, you Well, there has been a lot of look at that. I know I did it as Army Secretary of how do you bring that talent in. A big part of that is pay, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the private sector is going to pay a lot better. But the advantage that we have in the government is we can offer folks the opportunity to do things they wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. So I think we need to continue to look at that. We need to make it attractive uh, in, in terms of serving your country and, and, and being able to do that. And then you have to address quality of life issues. But look, we have to get further on the cutting edge. We're not yet there on all things because, uh, you, you know, it's not just drones. It's to me, it's artificial intelligence. It's yep. directed energy. It's the hypersonics. They all, they all work together. Yeah. And uh, look, I put forward the largest R&D budget in the nation's history in 2020. And then we followed up with that. The Biden team picked it up in 2021. And so you got to keep uh, investing in research and development, but you have to have the people to go with it. At the end of the day, the people are the most critical element of that. And I'm curious with the pandemic, obviously, we've seen a lot of issues with our supply chains. Those are especially important for the military. How, how do you think about that for the military? Say semiconductors, are there other things that you guys yeah. worked on there? COVID taught us a lot. We learned that, you know, a lot of things we needed to deal with COVID. And of course, again, DOD was at the front end of this with either our medical ships or I had thousands of people in cities all across the United States helping take care of, of, uh, people infected with COVID or delivering supplies. But we learned that uh, our supply chain was stretched all the way back to China, that we couldn't get certain supplies. In other parts of the world, it was an unreliable supply chain. And we really started looking hard at what the impacts would be. And we're looking at how do we either reshore some of these technologies, semiconductors is is a principal one, or how do we get them into countries that are more reliable partners? And I think that is a long-term strategic uh, initiative that we need to keep pursuing. That makes sense. We started the biomanufacturing company, ended up partnering with the DOD along mm-hmm. those lines as well, which is cool. So they're, they're thinking pretty expansively. Uh, Mr. Secretary, in May, you're releasing your memoir. It's right. uh, called A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. Uh, what inspired the book? And can you can you give us a, a little preview of the types of things you're going to be talking about? Sure. Well, as you know, I can't talk too much about it. But yeah, it comes out May 10th. And uh, you can order now if you want on Amazon or any other major bookseller. But I thought it was important to really give the insights of a cabinet member, particularly the Department of Defense, which was uh, which is in the middle of so many big, important events during the Trump administration, and share with folks what I saw from my perch in one of the most tumultuous periods in American history. Yeah. And as I've thought back and reflected upon this, you know, during the year 2020 alone, I had to deal with, you know, a, 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 a global pandemic we hadn't seen in 100 years, civil unrest we hadn't dealt with in generations. We had to deal with uh, China and Russia on the move, conflict with Iran. We're still dealing with uh, Afghanistan. It was a very busy time. And uh, and so what I want to do is share with the American people my experiences. Uh, certainly history demands that there be a, a, you know, a good thorough accounting of what happened during this period. And I also want to speak to you know students of government or people currently in government to share with them my experiences, how, how I approach problems share with them where I thought I did things well and maybe didn't do things as well. Hopefully so we can all learn from it to do, keep doing even better next time. You know, we started the show to push back 
on a lot of the cynicism and pessimism we're seeing in our country right now. Uh, obviously, there are a lot of challenges in defense and with Russia and China and Iran. Uh, but you know, what are some of the best reasons to be optimistic about our country and the future of national security? We're the greatest country in the world, the oldest democracy in the world. Uh, despite our problems, uh, the fact is uh, we are much stronger given the diversity of our people, our views, our entrepreneurial culture, our, our, our democratic system of government. And we, we are a hardworking, innovative people who will come together when times are tough. And nobody should ever, uh, you, you know, underestimate what the American people do can do. Well, you know, there's a perception among some that U.S. power is is on the decline in the world. We bungled Afghanistan and there's issues. But, you know, in other ways, the opposite seems true in the sense that maybe more people are looking to join NATO and looking to us there. And the newly elected, like you said, South Korean president wants strategic nukes in, in their country. Uh, Shinzo Abe is calling for an end to U.S. to you know strategic ambiguity with Taiwan. So there's like some people really trying to pull us to say you need to be even bigger and stronger and, and, and trusting us and our people who are very cynical. Like how should we be thinking about it? I role? would never underestimate the United States or the American people. Look, people were saying these things and worse at the end of the Vietnam War in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Vietnam end. We had the you know the the culture of the 60s. We had Watergate, all those things, and people thought the country was falling apart then. And then Ronald Reagan came along and he inspired us once again. He reached, uh, touched us all, reached deep into the roots of, of American culture and inspired us to be better. And we ended up winning the Cold War just a year after he left office. And we built the greatest military ever. And that endures to this day. And so, look, I, I think people would be mistaken to do that. Uh, we, we ebb and flow with the times. I do think the biggest challenge we face today is not Russia or China. It's our political dysfunction in Washington, D.C. What we need is our elected leaders to get their act together, put country first, and really uh, help move the country forward. That's a great note to leave it on. Thank you for your time, Mr. Secretary. Thanks, Joe. Great being with you today. 